Part 1, Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 7, Part 1. The Rupture. 1. During the whole of the next day, George waited for a letter from Marguerite. There was nothing at the club but by the first post. He went to the office, hoping that as he had addressed his telegram from Russell Square, she might have written to Russell Square. There was nothing at Russell Square. At lunchtime, no word had arrived at the club. When the office closed, no word had arrived at the office. The last post brought nothing to the club. He might have sent another telegram to Alexandra Grove, but he was too proud to do so. He dined alone and most miserably at the club. Inspired by unhappiness and resentment, he resolved to go to bed. In bed he might read himself to sleep. But in the hall of the club his feet faltered. Perhaps it was the sight of hats and sticks that made him vacillate, or a glimpse of reluctantly dying silver in the firmament over Candle Court. He wavered. He stood still at the foot of the stairs. The next moment he was in the street. He decided to call on Ag at the studio. Ag might have the clue to Marguerite's astounding conduct, though he had it not. He took a hansom after saying he would walk. He was too impatient for walking. Possibly Marguerite would be at the studio. Possibly a letter of hers had miscarried. Letters did miscarry. He was in a state of peculiar excitement as he paid the cabman, an enigma to himself. The studio was quite dark. Other studios showed lights, but not Ag's. From one studio came the sound of a mandolin. He thought it was a mandolin, and the sound seemed pathetic, tragic to his ears. Ag was perhaps in bed. He might safely arouse her. She would not object. But no, he would not do that. Pride again. It would be too humiliating for him, the affianced, to have to ask Ag. I say, do you know anything about Marguerite? The affianced ought to be the leading authority as to the doingers of Marguerite. He turned away, walked a little, and perceived the cabman swinging himself cautiously down from his perch in order to enter a public house. He turned back. Marguerite, too, might be in bed at the studio. Or the girls might be sitting in the dark, talking, a habit of theirs. Fanciful suppositions. At any rate, he would not knock at the door of the studio, would not even enter the alley again. What carried him into the Fulham Road and westwards as far as the workhouse tower and the corner of Alexandra Grove? Feet. But surely the feet of another person over which he had no control. He went in the lamplit dimness of Alexandra Grove like a thief. He crept into it. The silver had not yet died out of the sky. He could see it across the spaces between the dark houses. It was sad in exactly the same way as the sound of the mandolin had been sad. What did he mean to do in the grove? Nothing. He was just walking in it by chance. He could indeed do nothing. Or if he rang at number eight, old Hain would again confront him in the portico. He passed by number eight on the opposite side of the road. No light showed, except a very dim glow through the blind of the basement window to the left of the front door. Those feet beneath him strolled across the road. The basement window was wide open. The blind being narrower than the window frame, he could see through the railings into the room within. He saw Marguerite. She was sitting in an uncomfortable posture in the rather high-seated armchair in which, formerly, when the room was her studio, she used to sit at her work. Her head had dropped on one shoulder. She was asleep. On the table a candle burned. His heart behaved strangely. He flushed. All his flesh tingled. 
the gate creaked horribly as he tiptoed into the patch of garden. He leaned over the little chasm between the level of the garden and the window, and supported himself with a hand on the lower sash. He pushed the blind sideways with the other hand. Marguerite! in a whisper, then louder. Marguerite! She did not stir. She was in a deep sleep. Her hands hung limp. Her face was very pale and very fatigued. She liberated the same sadness as the sound of the mandolin and the gleam of silver in the June sky, but it was far more poignant. At the spectacle of those weary and unconscious features, and of the soft bodily form, George's resentment was annihilated. He wondered at his resentment. He was aware of nothing in himself but warm, protective love. Tenderness surged out from the impenetrable secrecy of his heart, filled him, overflowed, and floated in waves towards the sleeper. In the intense sadness, and in the uncertainty of events, he was happy. An older man might have paused, but, without hesitancy, George put his foot on the window-sill, pushed down the window farther, and clambered into the room in which he had first seen Marguerite. His hat, pressing back with the blind, fell off and bounced its hard felt on the floor, which at the edges was uncarpeted. The noise of the hat and the general stir of George's infraction disturbed Marguerite, who awoke and looked up. The melancholy which she was exhaling suddenly vanished. Her steady composure in the alarm delighted George. "'Couldn't wake you,' he murmured lightly. It was part of his five towns upbringing to conceal excitement. "'Saw you through the window.' "'Oh, George, was I asleep?' Pleasure shone on her face. He deposited his stick and sprang to her. He sat on the arm of the chair. He bent her head back and examined her face. He sat on her knee and held her. She did not kiss. She was kissed. He liked that. Her fatigue was adorable. I came here for something, and I just sat down for a second because I was so tired, and I must have gone right off. No, no. The admonishing negative was to stop him from getting up off her knee. She was exhausted, yet she had vast resources of strength to bear him on her knee. She was wearing her oldest frock. It was shabby, but it exquisitely suited her then. It was the frock of her capability, of her great labours, of her vigil, of her fatigue. It covered, but did not hide, her beautiful contours. He thought she was marvellously beautiful, and very young, far younger than himself. As for him, he was the dandy, in striking contrast to her. His dandyism, as he sat on her knee, pleased both of them. He looked older than his years, his shoulders had broadened, his dark moustache thickened. In his own view, he was utterly adult, as she was in hers. But their young faces, so close together, so confident, were touchingly immature. As he observed her grave satisfaction at his presence, the comfort which he gave her, he felt sure of her, and the memory of his just resentment came to him, and he was tenderly reproachful. "'I expected to hear from you,' he said. The male in him relished the delicate accusation of his tone. Marguerite answered with a little startled intake of breath. "'She's dead.' "'Dead?' "'She died this afternoon. The layer out left about half an hour ago.' Death parted them. He rose from her knee, and Marguerite did not try to prevent him. He was profoundly shocked. With desolating vividness he recalled the Sunday afternoon when he had carried upstairs the plump, living woman, now dead. He had always liked Mrs. Lobb. It was as Mrs. Lobb that he thought of her. He had not seen much of her. 
Only on that Sunday afternoon had he and she reached a sort of intimacy, unspoken but real. He had liked her. He had even admired her. She was no ordinary being, and he had sympathised with her for Marguerite's quite explicable defection. He had often wished that those two, the charwoman and his beloved, could somehow have been brought together. The menaces of death had brought them together. Mrs. Lobb was laid out in the bedroom which he had once entered. Mrs. Lobb had been dying while he dined richly with Miss Wheeler and Laurentiu, and while he talked cynically with Everard Lucas. And while he had been resenting Marguerite's neglect, Marguerite was watching by the dying bed. Oh, the despicable superficialities of restaurants and clubs! He was ashamed. The mere receding shadow of death shamed him. The baby's dead too, of course, Marguerite added. She ought never to have had a baby. It seems she had had two miscarriages. There were tears in Marguerite's eyes and in her voice. Nevertheless, her tone was rather matter-of-fact as she related these recondite and sinister things. George thought that women were very strange. Imagine Marguerite quietly talking to him in this strain. Then the sense of the formidable secrets that lie hidden in the histories of families and the sense of the continuity of individual destinies overwhelmed him. There was silence. And your exam begins tomorrow, whispered the astonishing Marguerite. Where's the old gentleman? He's sitting in the parlour in the dark. It was a terrible house. They too intimidated and mournful in the basement. The widower solitary on the ground floor. The dead bodies, the wastage and futility of conception and long bearing, up in the bedroom. And in all the house, the light of one candle. George suddenly noticed then that Marguerite was not wearing the thin, delicate ring which he had long ago given her. Had she removed it because of her manual duties? He wanted to ask the question, but even unspoken it seemed too trivial for the hour. There was a shuffling sound beyond the door, and a groping on the outer face of the door. Marguerite jumped up. Mr. Haymes stumbled into the room. He had incredibly aged. He looked incredibly feeble. But as he pointed a finger at George, he was in a fury of anger, and his anger was senile, ridiculous, awful. I thought I heard voices, he said, half squeaking. How did you get in? You didn't come in by the door. Out of my house. My wife lying dead upstairs, and you choose this night to break in. He was implacable against George, absolutely, and George recoiled. The opening of the door had created a draught in which the candle flame trembled, and the shadow of the old man trembled on the door. You better go. All right, all right, Marguerite murmured to George very calmly, very gently, very persuasively. She stood between the two men. Her manner was perfect. It eternally impressed itself on George. Father, come and sit down. The old man obeyed her. So did George. He snatched his hat and stick. By the familiar stone steps of the basement and along the familiar hall, he felt his way to the door, turned the familiar knob, and departed. 2. The examination began the next day. Despite his preoccupation about Marguerite, George's performances during the first days were quite satisfactory to himself. Indeed, after a few minutes in the examination room, after the preliminary critical assessing of the difficulty of the problems in design and the questions and of his ability to deal with them, George successfully forgot everything except the great seven-day duel between the self-constituted autocratic authorities backed by prestige and force, and the aspirants 
who had naught but their wits to help them. He was neither a son, nor a friend, nor a lover. He ceased to have human ties. He had become an examinee. Marguerite wrote him two short letters which were perfect, save that he always regarded her handwriting as a little too clerical, too like her father's. She made no reference whatever to the scene in the basement room. She said that she could not easily arrange to see him immediately, and that for the sake of his exam he ought not to be distracted. She would have seen him on the Saturday, but on Saturday George learnt that her father was a little unwell and required, even if he did not need, constant attention. The funeral, unduly late, occurred by Mr Haynes' special desire on the Sunday, most of which day George spent with Everard Lucas. On the Monday he had a rendezvous at eight o'clock with Marguerite at the studio. She opened the door herself, and her welcome was divine. Her gestures spoke, delicate and yet robust in their candour. But she was in deep mourning. Oh, he said, holding her, you're wearing black then. Of course, she answered sweetly. You see, I had to be there all through the funeral, and father would have been frightfully shocked if I hadn't been in black, naturally. Of course, he agreed. It was ridiculous that he should be surprised and somewhat aggrieved to find her in mourning. Still, he was surprised and somewhat aggrieved. Besides, she added vaguely, and that besides disquieted him and confirmed his grievance. Why should she wear mourning for a woman to whom she was not related, whom she had known simply as a charwoman, and who had forced her to leave her father's house? There was no tie between Marguerite and her stepmother. George, for his part, had liked the dead woman, but Marguerite had not even liked her. No, she was not wearing black in honour of the dead, but to humour the living. And why should her father be humoured? George privately admitted the unreasonableness, the unsoundness of these considerations. Obviously, mourning wear was imperative for Marguerite. Nevertheless, they were present in his mind. That frock's a bit tight, but it suits you, he said, advancing with her into the studio. It's an old one, she smiled. An old one? It's one I had for mother. He had forgotten that she had had a mother, that she had known what grief was only a very few years earlier. He resented these bereavements and the atmosphere which they disengaged. He wanted a different atmosphere. Is the exam really all right? she appealed to him, taking both his hands and leaning against him and looking up into his face. What did I tell you in my letter? Yes, I know. The exam is as right as rain. I knew it would be. You didn't, he laughed. He imitated her. Is the exam really all right? She just smiled. He went on confidently. Of course, you never know your luck, you know. There's the viva tomorrow. Where's old Ag? She's gone home. Thoughtful child. How soon will she be back? About nine, said Marguerite, apparently unaware that George was being funny. Nine? Oh, George, Marguerite exclaimed, breaking away from him. I'm awfully sorry, but I must get on with my packing. What packing? I have to take my things home. What home? Father's, I mean. She was going to live with her father, who would not willingly allow him, George, to enter the house. How astounding girls were! She had written to him twice without giving the least hint of her resolve. He had to learn it, as it were, incidentally, through the urgency of packing. She did not tell him she was going. She said she must get on with her packing. And there, lying on the floor, was an open trunk, and two of her drawing boards already had string round them. 
George inquired. How is the old man today? He's very nervy, said Marguerite briefly and significantly. I'd better light the lamp. I shall see better. She seemed to be speaking to herself. She stood on a chair and lifted the chimney off the central lamp. George absently passed her his box of matches. As she was replacing the chimney, he said suddenly in a very resolute tone, This is all very well, Marguerite, but it's going to be jolly awkward for me. She jumped lightly down from the chair like a little girl. Oh, George, I know, she cried. It will be awkward for both of us, but we shall arrange something. She might have resented his tone. She might have impulsively defended herself, but she did not. She accepted his attitude with unreserved benevolence. Her gaze was marvellously sympathetic. I can't make out what your father's got against me, said George angrily, building his vexation on her benevolence. What have I done, I should like to know? It's simply because you lived there all that time without him knowing we were engaged. He says if he'd known he would never have let you stay there a day. She smiled mournfully, forgivingly, excusingly. But it's preposterous. How it is. And how does he behave to you? Is he treating you decently? Oh, fairly. You see, he's got a lot to get over. And he's most frankly upset about his wife. Well, you saw him yourself, didn't you? That's no reason why he should treat you badly. But he doesn't, George. Oh, I know, I know. Do you think I don't know? He's not even decent to you. I can hear it in your voice. Why should you go back and live with him if he isn't prepared to appreciate it? But he expects it, George. And what am I to do? He's all alone. I can't leave him all alone, can I? George burst out. I tell you what it is, Marguerite. You're too good-natured. That's what it is. You're too good-natured. And it's a very bad thing. Tears came into her eyes. She could not control them. She was grieved by his remark. I'm not, George. Truly, you must remember Father's been through a lot this last week. So have I. I know, I know. I admit all that. But you're too good-natured, and I'll stick to it. She was smiling again. You only think that because you're fond of me. Nobody else would say it, and I'm not. Help me to lift this trunk onto the chest. While the daylight withdrew, and the smell of the lamp strengthened and then faded, and the shadows cast by the lamp rays grew blacker, she went on rapidly with her packing, he serving her at intervals. They said little. His lower lip fell lower and lower. The evening was immensely, horribly different from what he had expected and hoped for. He felt once more the inescapable grip of destiny fastening upon him. Why are you in such a hurry? he asked, after a long time. I told father I should be back at a quarter past nine. This statement threw George into a condition of total dark disgust. He made no remark. But what remarks he could have made, sarcastic, bitter, unanswerable. Why, indeed, in the name of heaven, should she promise her father to be back at a quarter past nine, or to a quarter past anything? Was she a servant? Had she no rights? Had he himself, George, no rights? A little before nine, Ag arrived. Marguerite was fast in the trunk. Now be sure, Ag, said Marguerite, don't forget to hang out the Carter Patterson card at the end of the alley tomorrow morning. I must have these things at home tomorrow night, for certain. The labels are on, and here's tuppence for the man. Do I forget? reported Ag cheerfully. By the way, George, I want to talk to you. She turned to Marguerite and repeated in quite a different voice. 
I wanted to talk to him, dear, tonight. Do let him stay, will you? Marguerite gave a puzzled assent. I'll call after I've taken Marguerite to Alexandra Grove, Ag, on my way back to the club. Oh, no, you won't, said Ag. I shall be gone to bed, then. Look at that portrait and see how I've worked. My family's concerned about me. He wants me to go away for a holiday. George had not, till then, noticed the portrait at all. But I must take Marguerite along to the Grove, he insisted. She can't go alone. And why can't she go alone? What sort of a conventional world do you think you live in? Don't girls go home alone? Don't they come in alone? Don't I? Anybody would think to listen to some people that the purda flourished in Chelsea. But it's all pretense. I don't ask for the honour of a private interview with you every night. You've both of you got all your lives before you. And for once in a way, Marguerite's going out alone. At least you can take her to the street. I don't mind that. But don't be outside more than a minute. Ag, who had sat down, rose and slowly removed her small hat. With pins in her mouth, she said something about the luggage to Marguerite. All right, all right, George surrendered gloomily. In truth, he was not sorry to let Marguerite depart solitary, and Ag's demeanour was very peculiar. He would have been almost afraid to be too obstinate in denying her request. He had never seen her hysterical, but a suspicion took him that she might be capable of hysteria. You never knew with that kind of girl, he thought sagaciously. In the darkness of the alley, George said to Marguerite, feigning irritation, What on earth does she want? Ag, oh, it's probably nothing. She does get excited sometimes, you know. The two girls had parted with strange, hard demonstrations of affection from Ag. I suppose you're right, said George coldly. Tomorrow, darling, she replied quite simply and gravely. Her kiss was warm, complete, faithful, very loving, very sympathetic. Nothing in her demeanour as she left him showed that George had received it in a non-committal manner. Yet she must have noticed his wounded reserve. He did not like such duplicity. He would prefer her to be less miraculously angelic. When he re-entered the studio, Ag, who very seldom smoked, was puffing violently at a cigarette. She reclined on one elbow on the settee, her eyes fixed on the portrait of herself. George was really perturbed by the baffling queerness of the scenes through which he was passing. "'Look here, infant in arms,' she began immediately. "'I only wanted to say two words to you about Marguerite. Can you stand it?' There was a pause. George walked in front of her, hiding the easel. "'Yes,' he said gruffly. "'Well, Marguerite's a magnificent girl. She's extraordinarily capable. You think she could look after herself as well as anyone. But she can't. I know her far better than you do.' She needs looking after. She'll make a fool of herself if she isn't handled. How do you mean? You know what I mean. Do you mean about the old man? I mean about the perfectly horrid old man. If I was in your place, if I was a man, she said passionately, do you know what I should do with Marguerite? I should carry her off. I should run away with her. I should drag her out of the house, and she should know what a real man was. I'm not going to discuss her with you. I'm not going to say any more at all. I'm off to bed. But before you go... I do think you might tell me my portrait's a pretty good thing. And she did not say any more. End of part one, chapter seven, part one.